Welcome to our global audience. I am Sandy Fredman. I'm Professor of Law here at the Oxford Law Faculty and the Director of the Oxford Human Rights Hub. We are delighted to welcome both our live audience and our global audience to this, our second episode of our webinar series. Um, we are very delighted to welcome Professor Alan Bogg to present our seminar, which is going to be on the right to strike. Professor Alan Bogg is well known to many people as an international expert on labor law and particularly on the right to strike. So we are particularly delighted to be able to have him here today. The webinar, which is audio and slides and not video, will take around 45 minutes and after that there will be plenty of time to answer questions. We'll have a question and answer session for about 15 minutes. For those of you who are not able to participate all the way through or want to come back and share it again, the slides and audio will be available on the Oxford Human Rights Hub website and also as a podcast on iTunes U. This is a responsive webinar, so we hope everybody, including our live audience, will participate continually throughout the webinar. There are two ways in which you can do it, which you can see on the slide here. You can tweet to us at Oxford Human Rights Hub using hashtag right to strike, or you can email Oxford Human Rights Hub at law dot ox dot ac dot uk please keep your responses coming in throughout and we will collate the questions afterwards we also have two polls in the course of the webinar which you will be asked to send us in your responses live during the time and then we will relay back the responses to all of you and again to participate the same way you can tweet us at oxhrh using the hashtag, hashtag right to strike, or you can email us Oxford Human Rights Hub at law.ox.ac.uk. So with that brief introduction, I hand you over to Professor mm. Alan Bogg. Thank you very much, um, Sandy, and it's a great pleasure uh, to be doing this webinar on the right to strike. Uh, and the right to strike is, of course, a, a controversial uh, topic, uh, and in fact, uh, nothing uh, so controversial as the paragraph that I sent out advertising um, the seminar. Um, so often people read emails very quickly, and uh, uh, somebody thought that the email said, Alan Barger menaced to hard-working people, question <laughs> mark, uh, and then got in touch and said, what on earth was the problem? Uh, so. Um, I'm not a menace to hard-working people, uh, so I, I'd like to get the record straight on that. But certainly, uh, there are many people who would regard strike action as a form of menace to hard-working people and to uh, the public good. Um, so, um, what I want to do in the seminar is explore in an open-minded way what it is about the right to strike that has made it so controversial in the pantheon of fundamental human rights. So what I want to do to begin with is look at that normative context to think about some of the arguments against the right to strike, 
to then go on and think about uh, some of the arguments in favour of a right to strike. Uh, and finally, to acknowledge that ambivalence about the right to strike is as much a product of what labour lawyers have thought about rights discourse over the years as it is about governments and employers. Um, so what I want to do is engage with a view that historically, in the UK at least, was very dominant, which was that rights discourse is really a kind of formalistic distraction uh, and it doesn't matter very much whether one calls it a right or whether one calls it something else. The key is the substance of the freedom. Now, uh, what I want to get to with that is um, I don't intend to be neutral. I want to set out the arguments and explore them in an open-minded way. But what I want to suggest is that the right to strike is properly regarded as a fundamental right for two main reasons. The first is that it's instrumentally connected to the right to collective bargaining, which is widely recognised as a fundamental right in international human rights law. Uh, and, and secondly, I, I want to kind of uh, follow what the Supreme Court of Canada has recently done in the uh, Saskatchewan case, which is to configure the right to strike as based in the constitutional values of equality, autonomy and dignity of workers, so that respect for the right to strike instantiates each of those core values. Um, in defending the view that there's a fundamental right to strike properly so called, um, that doesn't get around the fact that controversies remain about the implementation of the right to strike. Uh, and what I want to do in the latter part of the web webinar is to think about the right to strike uh, in three different legal orders. Um, first, the ILO, the International Labour Organization, which is uh, regarded as the authoritative organization for setting labour standards. And I want to think about the fate of the right to strike in that forum, because as many participants will know, the position of the right to strike has been controversial particularly over uh, the last two or three years with the activities of the employer group within the ILO. I then want to think about recent developments in the European Court of Human Rights, where there is now a protected right to strike under Article 11, uh, but what we see in recent cases is an emphasis on judicial deference and the importance of transnational courts not disrupting national industrial relations systems, so the so-called margin of appreciation doctrine. And I also want to think about that in relation to recent developments in Canada, where recently the Supreme Court of Canada has recognised a right to strike under the Freedom of Association Guarantee in the Canadian Charter. And interestingly, in that case, there's a very, very strong dissenting judgment where the emphasis, again, is on the importance of judicial deference and the need for judges not to get too embroiled in controversial topics involving social and economic issues. Finally, I want to think about the question of integration or fragmentation. Is it right to say that there is a single right to strike in all of these legal orders? Um, is that even uh, tenable as, um, as an aspiration? Or are we seeing fragmentation of standards across these different legal orders? And if we are, does that matter? Does that pose a risk? 
or alternatively is that an opportunity for dialogue between systems um, so that in broad terms is what I want to cover um, so without further ado let's begin uh, with uh, the question why is the right right to strike so controversial um, and I realize that it, it might be regarded as heretical by some labor lawyers even to ask this question uh, as if asking the question uh, risks destabilizing the right and I think it's important to avoid that kind of closure um, the only way to address arguments is to address them head-on and not to pretend that they don't exist uh, and also we need to acknowledge that these arguments have a significant degree of political traction uh, so we need to think about the arguments and we need to assess whether or not there's something in them so I think the first issue about the right to strike is that striking involves the intentional infliction of harm. Um, when people strike, they do so deliberately in order to inflict economic harm on another party intentionally in order to augment bargaining strength. Now, from a liberal perspective, that's problematic because harming and striking go hand in hand. And we need to acknowledge that the right to strike is, for that reason, an unusual kind of right. Because it's essential to the exercise of the right that intentional damage is inflicted on another party. The second point um, is that actually if we think about there being a hierarchy of norms at the international level in respect of international labour standards, many labour lawyers would regard the international labour organisation as being the expert body that sits at the apex of that hierarchy. And actually there's no explicit textual protection for the right to strike in the main instruments of the International Labour Organization. The right to strike is not mentioned in ILO Convention 87 and it is not mentioned in ILO Convention 98. Now many of you uh, tuning into the webinar will be lawyers and you know well enough that open textured language can be interpreted in order to derive standards and rights that aren't spelled out. But also we do need to acknowledge that the lack of textual specification of the right to strike has given some scholars um, uh, a kind of sense that it's appropriate to ask the question whether there is a right to strike at all within the International Labour Organization framework. And only last week at a workshop in Barcelona, I hear a very well-respected international labour lawyer putting precisely this argument. So the third consideration might be this, that the right to strike is, is given explicit protection uh, in certain instruments uh, such as the European Social Charter or the International Convention on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. It isn't uh, textually specified in uh, civil and political documents like the European Convention on Human Rights. So maybe this is a reflection of its secondary status as a right, so that it's not properly regarded as a civil and political right, which would be, we might regard as proper rights. It's regarded as a socio-economic right and uh, having secondary standing. 
And I think a moment's reflection would lead us to cast serious doubt on that kind of argument. So the difference between civil and political and socio-economic rights um, is a difference of degree rather than kind. And in any event, um, if you look at the activities of courts like the European Court of Human Rights, increasingly it's adopting an integrated approach to the interpretation of provisions under the European Convention. So that the line between civil and political and socio-economic rights is breaking down at the level of theory, but also at the level of judicial practice. Fourth argument, um, the derivation of the right to strike from freedom of association isn't straightforward as a conceptual matter. This is an argument that we would probably associate with Brian Langille, who uh, builds on the work of Sheldon Leader. Uh, so the idea here is that freedom of association protects individuals doing things collectively that they are at liberty to do as individuals. So the work that freedom of association is doing is it's protecting the collective exercise of something. But you need an independent theory to justify the something that's being protected. So in this case, the individual participation in strike action requires a justification from outside of freedom of association. So if you go to the next slide, um, we can continue uh, uh, through this litany of arguments um, against the right to strike or why we might regard the right to strike as so controversial. Uh, for English lawyers, English common lawyers, uh, strike action involves the commission of torts by strike organisers and ordinarily it involves a repudiatory breach of contract by strikers at an individual level. So for many common lawyers in England, they would regard that as an argument against its nature as a fundamental right. Um, and I'm sure that's true of most of the bench in England and certainly um, many members of the Court of Appeal at the current time with the notable exception of Lord Justice Elias. And I think there's a very easy argument uh, back against that which is to say that the right to strike offers a yardstick against which the common law can be measured. There's no reason why we should measure uh, or privilege the common law's treatment of strike action as any indicator of whether we should regard it as a fundamental right. It may well be that the English common law um, is um, aberrant when measured against the yardstick of fundamental rights. Another argument, I think an argument that needs to be taken seriously, is the sheer variety of implementation of the right to strike across legal regimes. So Lord Wedderburn uh, very powerfully made the point that there is no single right to strike even within Europe. There are probably as many different rights to strike as there are European countries that protect strike action. So even at a very basic level, who is the right holder? You get a different answer to that question in France as compared with Germany. In Germany, the trade union is the right holder. In France, the individual uh, striker is the right holder. Uh, and there's no normative account of that difference. It simply reflects differences of culture and history. So the fact that there is no single standard is sometimes used as an argument against the existence of a right to strike. 
finally, and this is a more general point that's not confined to the right to strike, but certainly implicates the right to strike, uh, recent work in the philosophy of human rights has been engaged in a, a project of circumscribing what counts as a human right. So most notably, a very influential book by the philosopher James Griffin on human rights uh, is the title of the book, where Griffin tries to identify a narrow set of rights based around a minimal concept of human agency. And that would rule out many of the rights that we would regard as classic labour rights that wouldn't fall within the scope of that philosophical project. But, all that said, there are some strong and, I would say, decisive arguments in favour of the view that the right to strike is properly regarded as a fundamental human right. Firstly, there are close connections between the protection of individual strikers and fundamental human rights such as freedom from forced labour or servitude. We all recognise that freedom from forced labour or servitude is a fundamental human right. I think that much is uncontroversial. And where you have regimes that um, take coercive lines against strike action, particularly against individual strikers, that might be regarded as implicating freedom from forced labour concerns. Also, striking is a form, often, of agonistic political expression. We take political expression seriously in liberal democracies. Um, very often, in constitutional courts, the right to strike is dealt with as an aspect of freedom of association, but in my view it could just as easily be characterised as an exercise of political expressive freedom. Uh, and um, in liberal democracies, uh, that freedom is, is rightly prized and protected. Striking instantiates the values of human dignity, autonomy and equality. These are the stirring lines taken from the majority opinion in the recent Saskatchewan case uh, involving the recognition of a right to strike under the Canadian Charter. Um, how does it respect human dignity? Striking enables workers to act as subjects. It enables them to take control over their own fate in negotiations with employers. And in so doing, it uh, augments their autonomy and it puts them in a position of relative equality because without collective strike action, workers individually are regarded often as in a relationship of subordination and inequality vis-à-vis uh, -vis the employer. Thirdly, uh, legal regimes that adopt a repressive approach to strike activity tend to be repressive regimes more generally. So a regime that is tolerant of strike action as a fundamental right will be, tend to be a regime that's more democratically tolerant across the board. Now, it would be uh, nonsense to suggest that any government democratically elected has an interest in promoting uh, the expansion of strike activity. Um, all governments of any political complexion have uh, political interests in deterring strike action wherever possible. Uh, but it's possible to deter strike action through non-repressive measures, such as provision of alternative dispute resolution. 
um, and that would tend to be associated with regimes that have better democratic credentials. Collective bargaining, whatever the controversies around the right to strike, collective bargaining is widely recognised as a fundamental labour right. If you recognise the right to collective bargaining as a fundamental labour right, and that is textually protected under uh, ILO standards, under ILO Convention 98, for example, it's very difficult to recognise the right to collective bargaining without recognising the right to strike as its necessary counterpart, because it's very difficult to conceive that collective bargaining could function without a right to strike. Otherwise, it becomes what has often been described as a form of collective begging. And it's interesting that in most constitutional forums around the world, this is the way the constitutional pattern has evolved. First, the recognition of the right to collective bargaining. The next step, inevitably, is recognition of the right to strike. And we see that in both the Canadian and the European context. The ILO committees have recognised the fundamental right to strike, uh, fundamentally derived from the open textured guarantees in ILO Convention 87 protecting freedom of association, specifically Articles 3 and 10. So whatever the allure of the textual argument against the right to strike, there is now a well-established body of decisional um, uh, law by ILO committees were both the Committee on Freedom of Association, which is a tripartite committee, and the Committee of Experts have both recognised a fundamental right to strike derived from ILO Convention 87. Uh, and whilst that remains a situation of controversy within the ILO, and we'll come to that in due course, I think that uh, given the respect that's due to those committees, uh, and the work that they do, uh, that has to be regarded as a weighty consideration in favour of the right to strike as a fundamental human right. There's been a widespread convergence on the protected nature of the right to strike as a human right across the world. So we see that in the European Court of Human Rights, and we see that in Canada, and we see that in other constitutional forums. So what we're seeing, I think, is a convergence on the protected nature of the right to strike as a human right. Finally, um, the project of James Griffin, where he's trying to limit the scope of what we would regard as human rights, isn't the only philosophical project in town. Uh, so there's a recent book, which I think the Human Rights Hub has um, engaged with, uh, through a workshop, uh, which is a book by Alan Buchanan, who makes the, the argument very powerfully uh, that uh, one can have international human rights with a moral basis, even if the particular human right is not itself a moral right, that there might be other moral reasons for having a system of international human rights law, and there's no doubt in my mind that the right to strike is protected in most of the legal orders uh, that one would count within the scope of international human rights law. We do need to address, um, and maybe this is a parochial debate, but it's a debate nevertheless that historically uh, in the United Kingdom was a significant debate because the exponent of this position uh, was a very eminent labour lawyer, Lord Wedderburn, 
who uh, famously argued that rights versus immunities in the UK context is just a formalistic distraction. Um, and I think, um, uh, I think that's easily addressed, actually. Um, I mean, there are a number of points that one can make here. Um, the first point is that from the perspective of individual strikers, it does matter that the UK is an immunity-based system because you need to recognise a right to strike in order to have a doctrine of contractual suspension of the employment contract. Secondly, um, immunities aren't just a matter of semantics. Most political philosophers and lawyers would regard rights as a special kind of normative consideration with particular normative consequences. One of those normative consequences is that an interference with a right must be scrutinised in a more exact, exacting fashion through a proportionality standard. Moreover, immunities in the UK context have provided a license for meagre judicial interpretations of the substance of the freedom. Finally, one of the arguments that Wedderburn made against a system of immunities was that a system of immunities was less judicialised than a system of rights. I don't think that that argument holds any weight. Judges interpret immunities just as they interpret rights. The advantage of having the right to strike characterised as a right if it, is it that it gives it more weight in the system. So, um, there we are, um, having uh, talked through some of the arguments against and some of the arguments in favour and some of the arguments based on indifference in relation to a fundamental human right to strike. Uh, here's a poll uh, and you can tell us what you think. So is it appropriate to regard the right to strike as a fundamental human right? Uh, you could answer A, yes, uh, as a moral and a legal right, so that it's fundamental in both a moral and a legal sense. B, uh, it is a fundamental human right, but only a positive right under international human rights law. C, uh, no, it isn't a fundamental human right. Or D, uh, you don't care. Um, maybe because you've cultivated uh, a sense of existential indifference to most questions or alternatively you could be a labour lawyer who's persuaded by Lord Wedderburn's view that it's just a matter of semantics. So let us know what you think and then uh, uh, we can uh, have a think about the responses. So there are various ways that you can uh, participate in the poll. Uh, you can tweet your responses to at uh, Ox uh, Human Rights Hub, including the hashtag, uh, hashtag right to strike, or you can email your responses to Oxford Human Rights Hub at law.ox.ac.uk, or you uh, can complete the attached poll cards and hand them to the moderator assistants, uh, which will be very helpful for the vast audience that we've got physically in Oxford at the moment in the seminar room. So what we'll do now, uh, having thought about the right to strike as a kind of normative and conceptual matter, is to think about how the right to strike has been treated uh, in different forums. And what I want to do first uh, is begin with the International Labour Organization. Uh, so um, I would suggest that the right to strike should be regarded as a constitutional right within the ILO legal order 
and it's derived from a core ILO convention which is ILO convention 87 and I call this a constitutional right because freedom of association is protected in the Constitution under the Declaration of Philadelphia 1944 and more recently in the ILO's 1998 declaration freedom of association was identified as a core labour right uh, um, within that declaration an ILO convention 87 a core convention so freedom of association has a constitutional significance within the ILO and it's interesting that the right to strike has been recognised as derived from freedom of association not by one committee but by two committees the first is the special tripartite committee on freedom of association uh, which has recognised a right to strike um, and that converges with the view of the committee of experts on the application of conventions and recommendations uh, and the difference being uh, or one of the differences being between those committees that the committee on freedom of association has jurisdiction without the relevant convention having been ratified which is a further signal of the significance of freedom of association within the ILO's constitutional structure so there you go you've got convergence between two bodies within the ILO uh, standard supervision framework now many of you will know uh, that uh, in recent years there has been uh, an upsurge in the political activism of the employers group within the ILO that has challenged particularly the interpretive authority of the committee of experts on the application of conventions and recommendations to derive a fundamental right to strike from convention 87 and that challenge is twofold First, uh, the challenge is that the Committee of Experts does not, in fact, have authority to offer binding legal interpretations of any ILO conventions, including ILO Convention 87. And the second point is, even if it did have that authority, that it's usurped for itself, it wouldn't be a legitimate interpretive exercise to derive the right to strike from ILO Convention 87. Um, these arguments have been in circulation for a long time um, and it's interesting to ask the question why the political activism of the um, employers group has really risen in recent years and part of the explanation may be that ILO standards have been increasingly relied upon in other court settings like the European Court of Human Rights and the Supreme Court of Canada. So, um, so the pronouncements of the ILO committees have become consequential in legal terms uh, in jurisdictions where courts can issue binding judgments. And as we'll see, um, the problems within the ILO have been addressed head on both by the European Court of Human Rights and the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and it's fair to say that the authority of the Committee of Experts hasn't been shaken 
very much uh, um, from the perspective of those forums by the political activities of the employers group. Now, uh, before we go on to look at how things have been resolved within the ILO um, this very year, we might then just think again about the results of the poll. And if I could hand over uh, to Sandy and she can tell us what, what the views are out there in the, in the world. Well, thank you so much to everyone for your responses and please do keep your responses coming in. Remember that you can send in questions at any time um, which we will deal with during the course of it and you can continue to send in answers to our polls as well. But for the meantime, we have now gathered in your responses to this, our first poll, which was, as you will recall, is it appropriate to regard the right to strike as a fundamental human right? And we actually have a resounding majority of 90% in favour of A. So 90% of you think, yes, it is both a moral and a legal right. We do have 5% who think of it as, yes, it is, but only a positive right under international human rights law. 5% of you think, no, it's not appropriate to regard the right to strike as a fundamental human right. Unfortunately, everybody cares. Yay. So we had none of you saying you don't care. It's just a matter of semantics anyway. And while I'm talking, I'd like to um, welcome particularly our audience in South Africa from the Legal Resources Center, where um, many people are thinking a lot about the right to strike in the shadow of the report on the very tragic events of the strikers at Marikana, and we hope you'll stay with us and keep the questions coming in. And so I'll hand it back to Alan. Thanks very much, Sandy, and um, it's uh, wonderful to know um, that everybody cares, um, and uh, even if they've got um, whatever particular view they have, they feel it's worth having one. Uh, so if we move on to think about how things have been resolved at the ILO, um, this year um, uh, a ceasefire was called at the ILO, um, so um, it's a matter of some irony actually uh, that the employer group within the ILO had effectively gone on strike uh, in order to put political pressure on the committees for recognising a right to strike. Um, but uh, the um, workers and employers groups have now reached uh, uh, an accord for now at least, um, which led to the issuing of a joint statement earlier this year. And in the joint statement, uh, the joint statement reads that the right to take industrial action by workers and employers in support of their legitimate industrial interests is recognised by the constituents of the ILO. And that's a significant recognition that the employer group has signed up to. Um, it isn't clear on the face of that statement whether the employers group would regard the right to strike as being based in ILO Convention 87 or being rooted more generally in the constitutional protection of freedom of association. But it puts beyond argument that some right to take industrial action is recognised by the social partners in the ILO. Um, now, as part of that ceasefire statement, there's an agreement to address the mandate of the Committee of Experts and a clarification of the role of the Tripartite Committee on Freedom of Association. And that will take place within an overall review of the standards review mechanism. So clearly, um, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the disagreements aren't over yet, uh, but within the ILO, I think that the terrain has now opened up 
into a more general set of uh, debates about the role of the committees within the ILO and um, watchers of international labour law will need to keep a careful eye on what it means for there to be a clarification of the role of the CFA and whether um, that's code within employer speak for a dilution of the role of the CFA and we'll need to keep a weather eye on those developments. So moving uh, from the ILO uh, to the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, which is a, a regional uh, rather than a, a kind of a globally international instrument um, uh, under the auspices of the Council of Europe. Uh, and the historical starting point uh, for the right to strike under Article 11, which protects freedom of association, is that there's been minimal judicial protection of collective activities under Article 11. Um, now, as you'll see from the text of Article 11, it doesn't just protect freedom of association as such, it includes the right to form and to join trade unions for the protection of interests. And it's interesting to look at how that phrase has been interpreted over time by the courts. So if you go back to um, a string of judgments in the mid-1970s, uh, Article 11 was interpreted as protecting some measure of trade union activity. Uh, but it did not extend to protect any particular form of trade union activity. So in paragraph 39 of the Belgian police case, uh, the famous mantra that many European labour lawyers will be familiar with is that Article 11 protects the members of a trade union in having a right in order to protect their interests that the trade union should be heard. However, Article 11 leaves each state a free choice of means to be used towards this end. And in Schmidt and Dahlstrom, the court famously said that whilst the right to strike was one such means, it could not be regarded as an essential means. Now, um, in a, a remarkable decision um, that many of us are still reeling from, uh, Demir versus Turkey in 2008, uh, the European Court shifted position and recognised a right to collective bargaining as a fundamental right under Article 11, uh, which was a reversal of the approach that you see um, in the 1970s jurisprudence under Article 11. Um, and there are three aspects to Demir that are worthy of note. The first is um, what's called uh, an integrated approach to human rights adjudication. So what the European Court did is it drew upon a range of international standards, including ILO standards, in order to justify the expansion of Article 11 to encompass a right to collective bargaining. The European Convention was treated as a living document rather than a static text. And furthermore, the European Court looked at state practice across Europe and the constitutional traditions of European countries to take that as a form of normative guidance that it was appropriate to recognise the right to collective bargaining as a fundamental right. Now, once that step had been taken, it was but a small step to the recognition of a protected right to strike in the later decision in 2009 of Energy Yapiol Sen. And as I'd suggested earlier, uh, 
um, the right to collective bargaining was used as an instrumental justification for the right to strike as its counterpart. And what you see is a continuing um, adherence to the integrated approach where the European Court draws upon a range of standards in order to justify this escalating approach to, collect, to protection under Article 11. Now, um, many UK Labour lawyers um, will want to think about and will have views on the recent case of RMT versus United Kingdom, uh, where RMT brought challenges, amongst other things, to the prohibition of secondary industrial action in the United Kingdom, arguing that the prohibition of secondary industrial action was a breach of Article 11 and its protection of the right to strike. And I think RMT um, shook many Labour lawyers who, um, in the UK at least, um, were scrabbling around for inspirational places to go in order to um, promote collective freedoms. And the European Court has really stood out in that respect as um, a place um, to be used for political advantage. Uh, and the decision in RMT, I think, has shaken the confidence of many UK Labour lawyers. So, on the bright side, the European Court took the view that the right to strike was protected, but it declined to offer a view on whether the right to strike was fundamental. It also said that while secondary industrial action was protected, it should be regarded as an accessory freedom under Article 11, so that it wasn't at the core of what was protected under Article 11. It followed that because secondary industrial action was properly regarded as an accessory freedom, the uh, United Kingdom had a wide margin of appreciation under Article 11 too, and that the Uni United Kingdom's prohibition of secondary industrial action was proportionate. So, um, you'll be pleased to know that there's a right to take uh, secondary industrial action under Article 11, uh, but that it can be completely prohibited because a complete prohibition is proportionate under Article 11 too. And what I think is surprising about the decision is that I think we might be seeing uh, the fragmentation of international labour law because the conclusion that the ban on secondary uh, industrial action is proportionate seems to be inconsistent both with ILO standards and with standards under the European Social Charter in respect of secondary industrial action. So it may be uh, that in respect of RMT we're seeing the beginnings of a fragmentation of international labour law. And the question on everybody's lips is whether this is the shape of things to come or alternatively whether this is a limited political appeasement of the United Kingdom because a political game has been played over the last number of years uh, where the Conservative Party has been trying to push the line that withdrawal from the Council of Europe is a live political option and many people see this as sabre-rattling uh, in order to um, encourage the European Court to step back from the affairs of the United Kingdom. The recent case involving Croatia, I think, involves a more robust protection of the right to strike, but interestingly interesting in that case, there was no reference to ILO standards in the main judgment. So, um, RMT is a controversial decision. 
and here's the second poll and what I want to ask is whether you, whether you think the RMT case is best characterised as A, an appropriate recognition by the court of the importance of margin of appreciation in sensitive matters of economic and social policy, B, a politically motivated abdication of its responsibilities as a human rights court, or C, a signal to applicants that the court's scarce resources will be targeted at serious human rights abuses rather than the micromanagement of national industrial relations systems. So what we'll do is we'll get find out what you think about the RMT case. Um, so again, uh, you can tweet your responses to at uh, OxHRH, uh, including the hashtag, hashtag right to strike. Or you can email your responses to Oxford Human Rights Hub, and that's all one word, at law.ox.ac.uk. Or um, to the uh, people in the seminar room, uh, you can fill out your cards and hand them in to the moderator's assistants in order to make sure you heard. Um, so um, quickly, because we're uh, time is moving on, um, and we'll come back to the results of that poll. But I just want to touch briefly on the Canadian experience because uh, there's been, I think, a, a kind of parallel movement in Canada um, uh, in terms of what we've seen under the European Convention uh, with Demir and Energy Yapiol Sen. So the starting point for Canadian constitutional law, like Article 11 jurisprudence, is uh, a thin approach to freedom of association. So no protection of the right to collective bargaining, no protection of the right to strike. Uh, and in recent years in Canada, there has been an explosion in Article 11, uh, not Article 11, in freedom of association jurisprudence under the Charter. And eyes have been watching Canada um, eagerly as the uh, Canadian court has developed a right to collective bargaining as an element of the abstract freedom of association guarantee. Now, just as with Demir versus Turkey, having recognised the right to collective bargaining, it was surely only a matter of time before the uh, Supreme Court of Canada had to address the question of whether there was a right to strike, and it did so in the recent Saskatchewan case, where the majority recognised a right to strike was protected under freedom of association in the Canadian Charter. The right to strike is regarded as an essential part of a meaningful collective bargaining process, supported by history, jurisprudence and Canada's international obligations, particularly under the ILO. And as I've mentioned earlier in the webinar, we get this really powerful um, affirmation that striking is a form of respect for the dignity, autonomy and, quality, and equality of workers. <coughs> So before we move on and think about the, the, the um, dissenting opinion in the Canadian case, uh, if we could just ask Sandy um, what the results of the poll on RMT are, that would be great. Well, thank you again to everybody for sending us in your responses um, to this complicated question of the role of the European Court of Human Rights uh, and its response in the RMT case to the question of whether secondary action is part of the right to strike and nevertheless whether it should be deferring to the UK for example in terms of how that can or cannot be protected. 
So um, again, we have um, a very large majority in favor of B, which is that actually um, this response of allowing the UK to prohibit secondary action as part of the margin of appreciation is a politically motivated abdication of its responsibilities as a human rights court. 95% thought that this was politically motivated. 5% answered C, that it was a signal to applicants that the court's scarce resources should be targeted at serious human rights abuses rather than the micromanagement of national industrial relations systems. And none of you thought that it was an appropriate recognition by the court of the margin of appreciation. So thank you very much for your responses. Remember that you can keep your questions and responses coming in. And at the end of the session, Alan will have a chance to answer them. So please keep sending us your responses and I'll hand back to Alan. Thank you very much. And that's, um, that's um, yeah, well, that's a really resounding um, view that's been articulated um, and, and actually one that, for what it's worth, I share wholeheartedly. Um, so if we go back to the Canadian experience, um, we need to acknowledge that there was a powerful dissenting opinion in the Saskatchewan case um, uh, with a speech from uh, Justice Rothstein. Um, where he drew a distinction between the basic freedom of employees to resign their employment, so drawing the connection between uh, the right to strike and freedom from forced labour, and the right to strike as a statutory element in a labour relations regime. And his concern was that what the majority had done in the Saskatchewan case was to constitutionalise the statutory um, right to strike. And that was inappropriate because what it did is it involved the judiciary trespassing on the field of labour relations. But because of the economic and political sensitivities in the field of labour relations, the courts should keep out and it should be left to the legislature uh, to decide how to regulate the industrial relations process. Uh, there's an appeal to the importance of neutrality in constitutional adjudication. Although we might think that that's a rather dubious argument because, of course, um, there's nothing neutral about the uh, idea of judicial minimalism. Now, that isn't to say that judicial minimalism might not be defensible, but neutrality is not an argument in favour of judicial minimalism. Judicial minimalism reflects a political stance. One of the arguments made is that the right to strike is not an indispensable component of collective bargaining because there's a duty to negotiate in good faith and the duty to negotiate in good faith would be sufficient to protect the right to collective bargaining. I think that's a dubious argument. Firstly, um, I don't think it's attentive to the difficulties, profound difficulties, that there are with enforcing a legal duty to negotiate in good faith. And of course, it's no argument in the European context because the European Court of Human Rights did not take the view that there was a duty to bargain as a correlative to the right to collective bargaining under Article 11. Furthermore, uh, the minority take the view that there is no clear consensus in international law. But I think we've said enough in the webinar to indicate that that's a, an argument of dubious legitimacy. So, finally, and then um, I'll close for questions. Uh, the human right to strike. Um, there's an increasingly strong consensus in many jurisdictions around the world that the right to strike is a human right that should be protected. 
it's securely anchored in international human rights norms. I think we should also not acknowledge that deference is a real, not an imaginary issue. The right to strike is politically controversial, both in national and transnational contexts, and we need to be careful before we hand over blank checks to the judiciary, because the judiciary in many countries hasn't been noted for its friendliness to workers and the interests of organised labour. So there needs to be a measure of caution in handing over adjudication on the right to strike to judicial forums. Where next? Well, in my view, there's a need to distinguish between core elements of the right to strike and those elements that are amenable to differences in democratic implementation. Um, and that requires, I think, some normative work to identify what the core might consist in. But in my view, a starting point would be the protection of individual strikers from acts of victimisation. That would be part of the core, even if in respect of other elements like balloting or notice provisions, these are things that might be more amenable to differences of democratic implementation. Finally, are we seeing fragmentation or integration of international standards? It's too early to say. In the Canadian context, I think we see a signal to a high degree of integration. In the European context, if RMT uh, is indicating what will happen in the future under the European Convention, we will see undoubtedly more and more fragmentation, which I think um, we need to think very carefully about uh, as a, uh, if the dynamic is to ratchet down standards of protection for um, trade unions and working people. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much to Alan for a very interesting and challenging talk. I'm sure all of you are, um, who have been listening will share my, my thanks to him. We've already had many questions coming in from different parts of the world. Please do keep your questions and comments coming in. And to remind you again to send your comments to tweet. If you are tweeting, to please tweet us at ox at OXHRH, including the hashtag, hashtag right to strike, or email us at Oxford Human Rights Hub at law.ox.ac.uk. So we already have some questions coming in, and we'll start from one, um, from one of our, our listeners in the UK, who says as follows, if we recognise, once we've recognised uh, the right to strike as a human right, are there circumstances when it can be justifiably limited? And if so, is there a danger that allowing justification will water down the right to strike? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, and I think um, the answer to that question is that... Um, uh, it's impossible to conceive of a situation where we would regard the right to strike as an absolute right. Um, the right to strike we would regard, even if we regard it as a fundamental right, um, it must be amenable to restriction. Um, now, of course, if the restrictions aren't uh, interpreted and implemented properly, um, there is a danger of dilution, and the um, danger of dilution is mitigated 
by making sure that uh, restrictions are, are evaluated on the basis of a proportionality standard and in the application of the proportionality standard that that be informed by ILO standards in order to ensure that there's a measure of coherence and legitimacy uh, to the process of restriction. So that's my answer to that. Well, thank you very much. Um, Alan, and now we have a question from Canada, which is that the focus of the webinar has been on courts and on judicial interpretation. Should, should we rather be focusing on pushing legislatures to produce legislation protecting the right to strike rather than re relying on courts and constitutional interpretation? Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a fantastic question uh, and I think one of the concerns that um, I have uh, and it's a concern that really lies at the back of um, this account of judicial deference is that I think there is, uh, there is a danger in investing too much political energy into constitutional litigation in order to develop a framework uh, that guarantees a right to collective bargaining and a right to strike. So in my view, constitutional litigation has an important role to play, but the role to be played by constitutional litigation is as a backstop defensive measure when states are involved in serious interferences with the right to collective bargaining and the right to strike. You cannot entrust the task of creating functioning labour codes to constitutional courts. So you can't use, in my view, constitutional courts proactively. Um, they must be used defensively. And I think it's absolutely vital uh, that trade unions and working people remain politically and democratically engaged in the wider democratic process so that, um, so that the working people are not sucked into um, a, uh, a focus just on litigation in constitutional courts. Thank you. Um, we have time for two more questions. So the first of the two is again from, from one of our audience in, in the UK. And this one takes up your suggestion about alternative dispute resolutions and poses the question that if we uh, have alternative dispute resolutions, will that um, mean that it would be valid to restrict the right to strike or indeed to obliterate the right to strike altogether in favour of some alternative dispute resolution mechanism? I think that's a really excellent question. The line that I would take is the line that the majority in the Supreme Court of Canada takes, which is to um, uh, allow some scope for substitutability of the right to strike in circumstances where you have an essential service as defined under international law. And in that narrow circumstance, um, I think it's appropriate for there to be substitution of the right to strike, provided that the substitute is an effective and independent alternative mechanism. But I think I would also appeal uh, to the values in the majority's opinion in the Saskatchewan case, which is to say that striking is an affirmation of equality, dignity and autonomy. So we shouldn't readily allow substitutability except in very narrow circumstances as defined under international law. Well, uh, thank you very much, Alan. And unfortunately, we don't have time for all of your remaining questions, but we do have time for one more. 
which is this, which is um, how do the themes raised in your excellent seminar tie in with the recognition of the right to strike in the European Union's legal order, remembering for our global audience the distinction between the European Union and the European Convention of Human Rights. But how, how, would, um, how would that um, apply to the European Union's legal order, whether by the court in its now infamous decisions in Viking and Laval, or the member states, or in the Charter of Fundamental Rights? Well, the EU. Um, again, uh, an excellent and challenging question. Um, so uh, we, we know, we're all aware, uh, I'm sure, that, um, that the European project is poised on the edge of a precipice with the, the, the situation in Greece. Um, and there, there, is a, there is a political moment um, that, that has probably now arrived, which is a decision needs to be made by the people of Europe as to what the European project is. And actually, Viking and Laval provides a wonderful encapsulation for me of what the European project should not be about, which is the subordination of fundamental social rights to market freedoms in the treaty, which is exactly what Viking and Laval um, led to. Um, if we take ILO standards seriously, uh, Viking and Laval cannot stand if we take ILO standards seriously. Um, and the only way uh, to respond to Viking and Laval is to take the Albany approach, which is to have an immunity for collective action in relation to the free movement provisions, which is part of a wider uh, project of um, a commitment to the European order as an order based on dignity, freedom and um, uh, a social market economy. Well, with that, we will, have, we will be drawing to a close with that very resounding reaffirmation of the basic values behind the right to strike. Um, it remains for me to thank both our speaker, Professor Alan Bogg, our global audience. Thank you very much for your very active participation. I'd like to thank also those that you can't see in the room who have given us technical advice to the deputy directors of the Oxford Human Rights Hub, um, as well as our funders, the Bertha Foundation, Gallen and Gullen, and who have done the wonderful artwork that you've seen, Steve Pierce from the Oxford IT Services, who's here, our deputy directors, Megan Campbell and Laura Hilly. Thank you very much to everybody, and most of all, to our speaker, Professor Alan Bogg, for giving us his time and sharing um, his thoughts with us. Can I just tell you once, one more time that this presentation will be live for another few days. After that, it will be, you will be able to find it on the Oxford Human Rights Hub website, and you will also find it as a podcast on iTunes U on the Oxford University website. You will also find our first seminar on the right, our first webinar on the right to education as both a podcast on Oxford iTunes U and on the Oxford Human Rights website. Can you please look out for our next webinar in the series, which will be given by Catherine Costello on the rights of migrants. Uh, we will be giving you plenty of notice of, of this. Please join us again in the future. So thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>